The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. You're watching Squawk Box this Thursday. Tesla stalls in extended trade after the car maker posts a 24% drop in first quarter net income. Following a series of price cuts, the CEO Elon Musk says he's prepared to sacrifice profits for sales and market share. We're taking a view that we want to keep making it selling as many cars as we can, um, despite this being an uncertain macro environment. Uh, this is a, a good time to increase our lead further um, and we'll continue to in invest in growth as fast as possible. Morgan Stanley earnings beating estimates whilst regional lenders Western Alliance and PNC brush off deposit fears, keeping markets steady even as the Fed warns banks are tightening credit access. And in an exclusive interview, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu warns against Chinese-led efforts to broker peace here in the Middle East. The leadership there has uh, no illusions about who are their adversaries and who are their friends in the Middle East. They understand that Israel is uh, the indispensable partner for the Arab world in achieving security, prosperity and peace. L'Oreal sales jumped 13%, easily beating forecasts driven by Europe and North America. But China fails to add gloss to the numbers, with sales flat since the country's economic reopening. Welcome to the program this Thursday morning and we kick off the program with a look at Renault, the French automaker just delivering numbers at this point. So the overarching headline, solid start to 2023 with a 30% increase in revenue in the first quarter. And um, Renault, like many companies this earnings season, has managed to step over its own provided guidance. So first, first quarter group revenue in at 11.5 billion euros. The company's own consensus was 11 0.08. The group says um, the order book in Europe remains at record levels in absolute value and is at 3.3 months of sales. Um, it will remain above target uh, of two months throughout 2023. Confirms the 2023 financial outlook. The uh, group obviously comfortable with the um, earnings guidance that it's provided at this time. I think very interesting that they are talking about the, um, the order book through Europe, suggesting that there is a hangover from the uh, chip shortage and excess demand still in the system for their cars. Number of other lines here, the group boosted by the launch of several premium models, including the electric versions of the Megane, the Arcana and the Austral. Uh, the group posting a 14.1% increase in sales over the period to 535,000 units. This coming after four years of 
declines. Um, Charlotte is with us to talk a little bit more about this story. Good morning, Charlotte. Good morning. Renault. Yeah, well, it's interesting to look at the company because, as you remember, for the full year numbers, the last numbers, they posted a loss. But of course, they had this huge hit uh, from uh, coming out of China. It was also the largest market outside of Europe. They, put, they got a 2.2 billion euro hit for getting out of, of Russia after the war in Ukraine. So, uh, but the continued operation did well. And that's really been the focus on the turnaround, the change of strategy with the new CEO, Luca De Meo, moving away from uh, volume to margins. They've really been focusing on this. Uh, of course, there's also the question of uh, the Tesla price cuts, because, of course, that has been the story earlier in the week as well, with Tesla cutting prices in Europe. And I did ask the CEO, actually, when I caught up with him in February at the, at the publication of their full year numbers, and asked him about whether that would put pressure on Renault in cutting their prices as well to keep up with the competition. Electric cars are, you know, ramping up in Europe. We need to have a healthy business. And so in the case of Renault, uh, the last thing I'm going to do is to compromise on the, on the margins, uh, you know, of electric cars. We've seen competitors, you know, moving price up and down, et cetera, et cetera. This is your decision. But I, I don't think it's a very healthy practice in the long term. They had this just a few weeks ago, look at me, questioning the wisdom of this uh, price cuts. But just a few days ago, we actually had the head of Renault brand saying that they are reviewing their pricing policy worldwide after Tesla cut their prices in Europe. So a change of mind there in just a, in just a few weeks. But of course, then you also know that in the background for Renault, there's a lot happening. They are splitting their uh, EV unit away from their internal combustion unit. So it will be Ampere against Horse, uh, where they have their uh, partnership with uh, China. Gili and Aramco. So that's part of the business when they will spin off the Ampere, the EV unit uh, there in Nissan. They, they said they will invest in there. But of course, there's also still negotiations in the Renew um, Renault-Nissan alliance. Remember again, Renault saying they will cut their stake in Nissan. So it's a more equalized cross-shareholding between the two companies. But they've taken longer than expected mm -hmm. in bringing up the terms, the final terms of this. They were expected to close this at the end of Q1. It still hasn't been the case. Just a few days ago, look at the said it's just a question of weeks to finalize it but these conversations have been more difficult than expected between the Renault and Nissan again trying to leverage this alliance between the group but here again we see in those numbers that this shift away from volume back to margin seems to be benefiting again it seems that the car industry after the supply chain issues that has been in that area there's still there's still demand uh, for cars there's a bit of a soft spot that there's there's demand but there's the, uh, it takes a while to get the car so they're still benefiting from that Charlotte, excellent analysis as ever but this is a design disaster for investors this company and I know the government of France is the biggest shareholder in this one but when you look at the valuation in real terms compared with the CAC 40 compared with everything else in the sector and compared with, of course dare I say it with Tesla on every single metrics it's a disaster for shareholders and probably arguably one of the biggest value traps of all time let me just go through it they trade on three times forward the CAC trades on 15 times forward so around about five times in terms of valuation Ford which is not a highly valued company trades on eight times forward which is very low compared with the S&P which trades on 20 times and yet Ford <laughs> trades at eight times and this one trades at three times Tesla and again we can't do the comparison because it's just too far off trades at 43 times so the, the move whether it was Carlos Ghosn or DeMeo afterwards or what have you, the transformation with the Nissan ownership, the um, France holding, what have you. In terms of the value trap, which we've heard many times about over the 20 odd years I've been on this channel, it is still there at three times. I, in a sector which is lowly valued, this is right near the bottom. Yeah, and look, it's, it's interesting with Renault because they were 
very pioneers when it came to EV they as well, you know, with were. Zoe yeah. and the Leaf with Nissan. They were really, and then they kind of lost momentum on that front. So they're what they're trying to do again, and it seems to be working again. The Mayo, they they have the the new electric Megan is extremely successful. So they're trying to pick up on that front as well, and also they're paying the first dividend in four years. They announced in in February. So trying to charm the investors, say, yeah. look, you know, we have the momentum. We know what we need to do. Give us time. The turnaround is happening. But of course, then the war in Ukraine, giving them a, you know that exit from Russia, uh, costing them a lot of money. So the underlying trend for, for Renault is there, as you say, it's, uh, they had a lot of trouble over the yeah, past few years. Absolutely. I mean, what, what's extraordinary, we're talking about a company here that <clears throat> is now talking about a significant jump in revenue. So the, the quarterly revenue rise here is 30%, which is very, very respectable here. We're talking about a business that has an order book at record levels in absolute value. The Dacia, which is, you know, a brand that uh, appeals to the value motorist, has had astonishing growth, up 41% the sales here. Best, the Sandero, the best seller in Europe. And Europe looks to be providing a strong um, underpinning here for this business. But to pick up on Steve's point, the trouble with this industry is margins. And when, when all of that has been said and done, when you look at the operating margin, six percent and they're trumpeting six percent and that's astonishing isn't it because we've got a wall up here that shows tesla gross profit margin in at 19.3 percent and boy that's about as good as it gets for an automaker and we were talking yesterday yeah, about, that's not the about operating margin no 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 but we we're talking about asml yes but but the the margin story is i think incredibly important it's through this earnings season absolute, couldn't agree more. because there are going to be so many companies that surprise because they've managed to slip in price increases under cover of headline inflation but the point i wanted to make about the um auto sector more broadly is it's just it's just a very difficult sector to fall in love with because even when everything is going right it just isn't making enough money. ASML, we talked about yesterday, the Dutch chip um, machine manufacturer. Lithography. Their, their margin was, is up in the 40 to 50%. Can I just give you a problem with the like for like, though? And you're, consistently. You're, I don't disagree with anything you've said, but, but the problem is, and this is why, and as Charlotte's already alluded to, uh, everyone's so terrified about the price cuts from Tesla because they were the industry standard. You mentioned the gross margin at 19 odd percent. I'll come back with the operating oh, margin, which is which is the equivalent. It's 11.4. It's 11.4. Exactly. after the price cut, yeah, so it's effectively still double what the industry but, but, standard but, but, is. But, but it's where it's come from, Karen, yeah. as well. The fact is, it was from 16 percent the prior quarter down to 11.4 percent. That is an aggressive cutting in the operating margin. If if Renault and the like have to compete with that then that operating margin is 6%, well, that's going to be toast. Well, you've got Ford at 4%, so but if we talk at industry comparison to General Motors, 6.6%, so Renault in the range. But the problem is if this cost-cutting continues and something this might just be the beginning from Tesla, then where does that leave uh, margins for and, the rest that they be trying to price up on You're those? right. And can I give you some um, auto trader anecdotal evidence? So auto trader is where a lot of people, not everyone, but a lot of people in the United Kingdom go to, to check out used car prices. Interest in electric vehicles may be declining, according to data from um, AutoTrader. Uh, the volume of new electric car searches, ad views, and messages to retailers on AutoTrader platform was down nearly two-thirds, 65% from the beginning of last year to March this year. The electric dream is wavering and wobbling and needing a recharge. That's it, is it? We're not living in electric dreams anymore. 
That's a great song. It's a great song. Charlotte, thank you very much. Very provocative conversation. You're back with L'Oreal, yep. aren't you? Yes. And do you know why you're back with L'Oreal? Go on. Uh, no, go on. Come on. Oh, come on. Come on. Because, because you're worth it. Uh. <laughs> uh, right, let's pick up on the Tesla story because I think uh, we've got a guest uh, coming up on Tesla in just a few moments and we can drill into some of these stories. But of course, you know, when you're talking about Tesla and you're talking about um, uh, Renault, to a certain extent, it's chalk and cheese. It's not apples and apples. It's apples and oranges, isn't it? Let's take a look under the hood at those numbers. As Tesla has reported $2.5 billion in net income for the first quarter, down 24% from a year earlier. While revenue and earnings per share were in line with analysts' expectations, Tesla's gross profit margin fell to 19%, its lowest in two years, and below market estimates. The CEO, Elon Musk, has told investors the EV maker would prioritise sales growth over profit in the short term, while saying its autonomous driving cars would lead to strong profit in the future. Musk comments pushed Tesla shares lower in after-hours trading. Uh, the stock you can see down 6%. This is a reaffirmed the company's delivery target of 1.8 million EVs this year. Musk also stood by his aggressive price-cutting strategy. We do believe we're like laying the groundwork here, uh, and then it's better to ship uh, a large number of cars at a lower margin, and subsequently. Um, uh, harvest that margin in the future as uh, we perfect autonomy, autonomy. We're taking a view that we want to keep making and selling as many cars as we can, um, despite this being an uncertain macro environment. Uh, this is a, a good time to increase our lead further, um, and we'll continue to in invest in growth as fast as possible. Carl Hazley joins us now, lead analyst at Finimize. Carl, we heard from Elon Musk direct yesterday that they want to be a cost leader here, that they understand that uh, other companies are dealing with cost challenges and uh, very much in focus as they cut the price of those Tesla vehicles to, make, to remain even more competitive in this startup phase for a lot of the other OEMs. What does this mean as you take a look at Tesla from here? Hi there. Thank you for having me. I think... Just to take a step back, you saw Tesla report first quarter revenue of 23.3 uh, billion and, and earnings per share of 85 cents, which was broadly in line with expectations. But really, I think there were three things that may have worried investors and can explain why the stock is down 6% in the, in the US pre-market. I think first is those gross margins in at 19% down versus the previous quarter. And if I look back a year ago, down by 10 percentage points. Now that's obviously due to the price cuts that have been announced, but with Tesla announcing further price cuts uh, just on Tuesday, there's obviously going to be further pressure on those margins going forward. I think second is the free cash flow of just $441 million versus expectations for over $3 billion. So there's a lot of work to do there to understand exactly what's going on in the cash flow and particularly around working capital. And third, there's the stock's performance. So prior to the earnings release, the stock was up some 60% year to date. And you know, absent any incremental good news from the release, uh, investors may be simply taking some profit and that's putting pressure on the share price. 
Carl, I want to get to the strategy here because Elon Musk is steering Tesla into the mainstream auto market, not just into the EV segment. If you look at the pricing, the most popular model, model Y vehicle, I should say, it is competitive with the average cost of a vehicle in the United States. Does that mean that Elon Musk is tapping into the bigger, wider auto market in the States with these price cuts? And is that beneficial at this stage? I think that's fair to say, and I think that's probably the right thing to do. Um, we're probably making a bit of a mistake by thinking about the EV market versus the traditional auto market. That just there's just a market for vehicles, and if we fast forward 10, 15 years, we're all going to be having electric cars of some sort. So segmenting the market probably is the wrong way to think about this. And yes, if we're in a world of you know higher interest rates, tougher affordability uh, around the world on several measures, uh, cutting the price of cars is, is one way to stay in customers' minds and be affordable and therefore increase market share. Hi, Carl. Nice to see you this morning. So um, the problem is with this electric car revolution, well, there's many problems, but I'll just go for one at the moment, Carl. Uh, and that is the fact that the cars are way too expensive for, as you mentioned, a higher interest world, uh, a cost conscious world as well. Your average SUV is like £20,000 plus, about 23 grand more than an ICE SUV. And it's about 20 to 30 grand across the board as well. Why on earth should I, if I'm struggling to feed my family or indeed if I'm struggling uh, to pay my bills, why should I spend 30 grand extra on an EV? Yeah, look, it's uh, cost competitiveness is a challenge. Uh, I definitely agree. And I think if you're, you know, if you if you are looking for a $20,000 car, Tesla's not going to be an option for you. But if you're at the margin of looking at a higher end, maybe luxury uh, SUV versus an electric car, maybe the Tesla price cuts do bring you over to to their side. I think that's the that's the calculus that they're possibly thinking through here. So, Carl, just, just to wrap it up here, um, have we gone peak Tesla? The fact that they are now having to cut price to increase sales ultimately means they're, they're sort of devaluing the image of a premium product that can be sold at any price. So how should we think about the future for this business based on this new pricing strategy? Look, I think there are there's not much from this release to get uh, to get you excited if you're not already excited about Tesla. And I don't have a strong view one way or another. But if I take a bullish view over multiple years rather than just you know this quarter or this year, I think the the case here is that Tesla has a new generation of uh, manufacturing and cars coming beyond what's already out there. Uh, the company's aim is to halve its production costs. So if it can do that, the investments it's making in price now will allow it to sell future cars at an even more competitive price and help drive electric vehicles into the mainstream, maintain or you know continue to grow its market share in uh, in the overall auto space. Carl, um, absolutely fabulous. You can get up early for us today and chat to us. We really appreciate your analysis. You're a good man. Thank you very much for that. Carl Hazley, who's lead analyst at Finimize. Thank you, sir. Right, let me move on to the US markets. And do you know, as I said to you yesterday, for any of us who thought that the earnings season would be a catalyst for movement in one direction or t'other, we would have been totally wrong. Because look at this. We're, we're peak earnings season at the moment. And we are deadly flat on the US indices, as shown yesterday by the fact I was telling 
you that the VIX was coming off aggressively, trading at multi-month lows as well, low 16 handle as we speak. US banks were interesting, but again, there wasn't enough in that to really move the needle somewhat on the broader indices as well. Morgan Stanley, where are we? We're up 0.7 of 1% on Morgan Stanley by the close of trade and dropping deal making. You know all about that one. Citizens, where's Citizens? There you go. Uh, not even on this one. There you go. But Citizens was up 0.2 of a percent uh, despite the 5% fall in deposits. So whatever they're telling us, you're not moving much on the back of it. Yields, though, very interesting. Did you take a look at the Beige book yesterday from the Federal Reserve? I did, uh, and it was very interesting. And actually, it was talking about overall economic activity, little changed in recent weeks. Now, is that what the Fed wants to hear or not? Because it just seems to me as steady as she goes, and if it's steady as she goes, does that mean the yields have to pick up? The Treasury is at 3.6, the two-year paper at 4.25. So just gently picking up throughout the week, wasn't it? 4.1 was the low of the last few sessions. So again, nothing particularly to scare the horses on the economic activity, but lending volumes. I did notice this line in there as well. Lending volumes and loan demand generally declined across consumer and business loan types. So you're seeing a gentle squeezing, but nothing dramatic in terms of that availability. But I need to give you some drama in the market, so I'm going to do that now. I'm going to show you Brent. Now, this is Brent one month, and that's a brilliant board by chance that the team have put together for me because I want to show you the one month move, and I think this is it. This is what I want to show you. This is the 2nd of April, okay? And then, boom, we had that surprise cut from the Saudis and OPEC. Boom, took us up, and it took us up further, and we peaked at 87 bucks. We're just drifting, aren't we? Look at this. We're only just at $82 now. And I, I had a little look. And actually, we were trading at $79.77 just before the OPEC Saudi announcement. Do you think the $2 increase, two and a bit of change increase, was what the Saudis expected and OPEC expected uh, from that big announcement about cutting production to shore up prices. Because I'm pretty sure those analysts told me once again we were going to be $100, $110 a barrel on the back of that announcement. Well, we may well be there at some stage. But despite the China reopening, despite the hopes on the economy, despite the production cuts, look, we're still only $82. In fact, Brent's now down at 82 or WTI at 78. Just want to point that out to you as well because it's lost five bucks of that premium that came in on the back of the, uh, the, the price cuts, so the, the production cuts there as well. And I'm noticing a lot of derivative product, just anecdotally, and I always think it's worth looking at that side of things as well. I'm getting cheap offers on heating oil and uh, petroleum prices. Don't seem to have gone up to me. Anyway, there's a lot more tenants to the market than that. Asian indices, we have a look at those. Well, we've got the Shanghai Composite down 7 tenths of 1%. That aside, not a lot of activity to show you. Opening calls, I don't think these are too dramatic either. There you go. Look at that. Single digit moves in either direction, Jeff, despite concerns over the economy and indeed geopolitics. Program then, Israel's Prime Minister tells CNBC Saudi Arabia has no illusions about who its friends and adversaries are in the Middle East. We'll bring you more from that interview in just a moment.
Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on cnbc.com. Israel's foreign minister has said a visit to Saudi Arabia is on the table, but that no date has yet been confirmed. The move comes amid growing diplomacy between Israel and its Gulf neighbours. Following the 2020 Abraham Accords, the first time Israel has signed this type of agreement with an Arab country. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has told CNBC Israel is an indispensable partner for the Arab world and that peace with Saudi Arabia would be a, quote, quantum leap. Well, Hadley conducted this important interview, so let's get out to Hadley now for more headlines. Hadley, good morning. Good morning to you, Jeff. As you say, a fascinating conversation with Benjamin Netanyahu. This is a man who's been under, as you know, very serious pressure domestically over the last several months, um, trying to push through those very controversial judicial reforms. He failed to do that. And frankly, it's almost as if he's woken up to the fact that uh, all along, some major moves have been happening in the Arab world. And I'm talking, of course, about this China broker deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia. I'm also talking about some serious developments in Yemen and the fact that the Saudi foreign minister just paid a very important visit to Syria. So lots of moves, tectonic shifts, if you will, uh, across the region have been uh, happening over the last month or so as Mr. Netanyahu has been facing all of that domestic pressure at home. So I asked him specifically about this deal that's been brokered by Beijing and whether or not that's a good thing for Israel. Listen in. I think it has very little to do with Israel. I think it has probably a lot more to do with the the desire to de-escalate or even eliminate the uh, long-standing conflict in Yemen. Uh, I think that Saudi Arabia, the leadership there, has uh, no illusions about who are their adversaries and who are their friends in the Middle East. And I think they understand that Israel is uh, the indispensable partner for the Arab world in achieving security, prosperity, and peace. And in terms of being an indispensable partner, can you just walk me through what Israel would be willing to give in order to have Saudi Arabia join the Abraham Accords? First of all, we'd like very much uh, to have peace with Saudi Arabia uh, because I I think it would be uh, another huge quantum leap for peace. And in many ways, it would end the Arab-Israeli conflict. I'm not saying it would end the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Uh, Palestinians are about 2% of the Arab world. But it would end, in many ways, the, uh, the conflict between Israel and the Arab states because Saudi Arabia is so important. Now, the Abraham Accords that we had uh, were monumentally important, and it showed a, a great deal of leadership on the part of the Gulf state leaders, uh, United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and we also had, of course, Morocco and Sudan. Uh, we would like to uh, expand the circle of peace to its totality. Uh, we've already had steps of normalization with Saudi Arabia. As you know, we've been flying over the airspace of Saudi Arabia since uh, 2000, two years actually before the Abraham Accords. We recently uh, 
got the um, uh, ability to fly over Saudi airspace and Omani airspace, so we cut the time to India and Asia by hours. Uh, and all these things are obviously happening with full uh, uh, Saudi, uh, not merely Saudi acquiescence, but uh, with their full cooperation. There, I, I think the possibilities are endless. I think that uh, uh, what is being shown in the, the Gulf states, throughout the Arabian Peninsula, is tremendous imagination, uh, tremendous uh, entrepreneurship. And if you combine that with Israeli innovation, which is also tremendous, uh, I think the sky's, uh, the sky's the limit. And uh, even the sky is not the limit, because there are many opportunities in space as well. Prime Minister, you know, I spent a lot of time in Saudi Arabia, and I've been told many times by senior leadership, you know, it's not a question of if ties will normalize with Israel. It is a question of when. But the problem that I'm told again and again is that you, sir, and your politics for the Saudis today are toxic. And I'm talking about violence against Palestinians and even members of your own cabinet essentially suggesting that the Palestinian people don't exist. 14 million people might have a problem with that statement. What are you willing to do in order to make a peace and an Abraham Accord um, palatable to Riyadh? I think it's palatable. Uh, I, I think they understand that uh, there are enemies of peace. There are uh, organizations, terrorist organizations, uh, usually fomented by Iran. But uh, forces like Hezbollah and Hamas, they don't want to see Israel here. By the way, they don't want to see many of the Arab governments here. So they foment terrorism. They foment uh, religious. and. Then and why spirit. are they meeting with them in Riyadh, in your mind? Pro because essentially what we've seen is Saudi Arabia meeting with the Syrians, mm -hmm. meeting with the Iranians, Hamas, as well as the Palestinian Authority. So w what are the motivations in your mind for Riyadh meeting with your enemies? Maybe to tell them that uh, they're going to have to prepare themselves, maybe to try to tell them to stop uh, the kind of terrorism that they foment. Frankly, a fascinating conversation with the Israeli prime minister. This is a man that, as you well know, is leading the most right-wing government that his country has ever seen. Um, this is a man with many political lives, and this is probably just the next iteration of this. But, but uh, my questions to him really were surrounding the idea of Saudi Arabia joining the Abraham Accords and what that could potentially mean, not just for the business of the region, but also in terms of um, Saudi Arabia coming to the fore, really taking control of their own foreign policy in the absence of the United States. I also pushed him a bit on China as well. I said, is it worrying to you that we're seeing Beijing becoming the real power broker here as opposed to Washington? He didn't really have much to say on that one, although when I asked him specifically about whether he'd be willing to have Beijing broker a Mideast accord between Israel and the Palestinians, he said he hadn't even heard uh, that that was even on offer. And of course, the Chinese foreign minister had uh, made that offer in the last several days. Remember, though, when we talk about the Abraham Accords, this is a man that, while an author of that momentous uh, agreement between the UAE, Bahrain, Morocco, Sudan, uh, and Israel, he's never been officially invited to the UAE because, as I say, his politics are unpalatable to this uh, administration, to this government. And I'm talking Mohammed bin Zayed. Um, so a lot of issues still to work through for Israel to normalize relations uh, with Saudi Arabia and other Gulf countries. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.